Chapter Eight of the Life of Thomas Lord Cochrane, Tenth Earl of Dundonald, Volume One, by Henry Richard Fox Bourne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Chapter Eight. Lord Cochrane returned to Valparaiso on the twenty seventh of February, eighteen twenty. By General O'Higgins, the Supreme Director, and by the populace, he was enthusiastically received. But Zentino, the Master of Marine and other members of the government, jealous of the fresh renown which he had won by his conquest of Valdivia, showed their jealousy in various offensive ways. In anticipation of his failure, they had prepared an elaborate charge of insubordination, in that he had not come back direct from Carlo. Now that he had triumphed, they sought at first to have him reprimanded for attempting so hazardous an exploit, and afterwards to rob him of his due on the ground that his achievement was insignificant and valueless. When they were compelled by the voice of the people to declare publicly that, quote, the capture of Valdivia was the happy result of an admirably arranged plan and of the most daring execution, end quote, they refused to reward either to him or to his comrades any other recompense than was contained in the verbal compliment, and on his refusing to give up his prizes until the seamen had been paid their arrears of wages, he was threatened with prosecution for detention of the national property. The threat was impotent, as the people of Chile would not, for a moment, have permitted such an indignity to their champion. But so irritating were this and other attempted persecutions to Lord Cochrane that on the 14th of May he tendered to the Supreme Director his resignation of service under the Chilean government. That proposal was, of course, rejected, but with the rejection came a promise of better treatment. The seamen were paid in July, and the Valdivian prize money was nominally awarded. Lord Cochrane's share amounted to $67,000, and to this was added a grant of land at Rio Clara, but the money was never paid, and the estate was forcibly seized a few years afterwards. Other annoyances, which need not here be detailed, were offered to Lord Cochrane, and thus six months were wasted by Zentino and his associates in the Chilean Senate. Quote, the Senate, said Lord Cochrane, was an anomaly in state government. It consisted of five members, whose functions were to remain only during the first struggles of the country for independence, but this body had now assumed a permanent right to dictatorial control, whilst there was no appeal from their arbitrary conduct except to themselves. They arrogated the title of Most Excellent, whilst the Supreme Director was simply His Excellency, his position, though nominally the head of the executive, being really that of a mouthpiece to the Senate, which, assuming all power, deprived the executive government of its legitimate influence, so that no armament could be equipped, no public work undertaken, no troops raised, and no taxes levied except by the consent of this irresponsible body. For such a clique the plain, simple good sense of the Supreme Director was no match. He was led to believe that a crooked policy was a necessary evil of government, and— as such a policy was adverse to his own nature, he was more easily induced to surrender its administration to others who were free from his conscientious principles. Those sentences explain the treatment to which now and afterwards Lord Cochrane was subjected. He was allowed, however, to do further excellent service to the nation, which had already begun to reward him with nothing but ingratitude. As soon as the Chilean government could turn from its spiteful exercise, to its proper duty of consolidating the independence of the insurgents from Spanish dominion, it was resolved to dispatch as strong a force as could be raised 
for another and more formidable expedition to peru whereby at the same time the peruvians should be freed from tyranny by which they were still oppressed and the chileans should be rid of the constant danger that they incurred from the presence of a spanish army in lima calo and other garrisons ready to bear down upon them again and again as it had often done before in eighteen nineteen lord cochrane had vainly asked for a suitable land force with which to aid his attack upon calo it was now resolved to organise a liberating army after the fashion of that with which bolivar had notably scoured the northern districts of south america and to place it under the direction of general san martin in cooperation with whom lord cochrane was to pursue his work as chief admiral of the fleet san martin had fought worthily in la planta and had earned the gratitude of the chileans by winning back their freedom in conjunction with o'higgins in eighteen seventeen vanity and ambition however had since unhinged him and he now proved himself a champion of liberty very inferior both in prowess and honesty to bolivar his army numbering four thousand two hundred men was collected by the twenty first of august and on that day it was embarked at valparaiso in the whole of the chilean squadron lord cochrane proposed to go at once to chilca the nearest point both to lima and to calo san martin however decided upon pisco as a safer landing-place and there the troops were deposited on the eighth of september for fifty days they were detained there and the fleet was forced to share their idleness capturing only a few passing merchantmen on the twenty eighth of october they were re-embarked and lord cochrane again urged a vigorous attack on the capital and its port again he was thwarted by san martin who requested to be landed at ancon considerably to the north of calo and as unsuitable a halting-place as was the southerly town of pisco lord cochrane had to comply but he bethought him of a plan for achieving a great work in spite of san martin sending the main body of the fleet to ancon with the troops on the twentieth he retained the o'higgins the independencia and the lautoro with the professed object of merely blockading calo at a safe distance Quote, the fact was he said that annoyed in common with the whole expedition at this irresolution on the part of general san martin i determined that the means of chile furnished with great difficulty should not be wholly wasted without some attempt at accomplishing the object of the expedition i accordingly formed a plan of attack with the three ships which i had kept back though being apprehensive that my design would be opposed by general san martin i had not even mentioned to him my intentions this design was to cut out the esmeralda frigate from under the fortifications and also to get possession of another ship on board of which we had learned that a million of dollars was embarked the plan was certainly a bold one the esmeralda of forty-four guns was the finest spanish ship in the pacific ocean now especially well armed and manned in readiness for any work that had to be done she was lying in calo harbour protected by three hundred pieces of artillery on shore and by a strong boom with chain moorings by twenty-seven gunboats and several armed block-ships these considerations however only induced lord cochrane to proceed cautiously upon his enterprise three days were spent in preparations the purpose of which was known only to himself and his chief officers on the afternoon of the fifth of november he issued this proclamation quote, marines and seamen this night we shall give the enemy a mortal blow to-morrow you will present yourself proudly before callo and all your comrades will envy your good fortune one hour of courage and resolution is all that is required for you to triumph remember that you have conquered in valdivia and have no fear of those who have hitherto fled from you the value of all the vessels captured in callo will be yours and the same reward will be distributed amongst you 
as has been offered by the Spaniards in Lima, to those who should capture any Chilean squadron. The moment of glory is approaching. I hope that the Chileans will fight as they have been accustomed to do, and that the English will act as they have ever done at home and abroad. End quote. A request was made for volunteers, and the whole body of seamen and mariners on board the three ships offered to follow Lord Cochrane wherever he might lead. This was more than he wanted. Quote, 160 seamen and 80 marines, said Lord Cochrane, whose own narrative of the sequel will best describe it, were placed after dark in 14 boats alongside the flagship, each man armed with cutlass and pistol, being for distinction's sake dressed in white with a blue band on the left arm. The Spaniards, I expected, would be off their guard, and considered themselves safe from attack for that night, since, by way of ruse, the other ships had been sent out of the bay under the charge of Captain Foster, as though in the pursuit of some vessels in the offing. At ten o'clock all was in readiness, the boats being formed in two divisions, the first commanded by Flag Captain Crosby and the second by Captain Grease, my boat leading. The strictest silence and exclusive use of cutlasses were enjoined so that, as the oars were muffled and the night was dark, the enemy had not the least suspicion of the impending attack. It was just upon midnight when we neared the small opening left in the boom, our plan being well-nigh frustrated by the vigilance of a guard-boat upon which my launch had unluckily stumbled. The challenge was given, upon which, in an undertone, I threatened the occupants of the boat with instant death if they made the least alarm. No reply was made to the threat, and in a few minutes our gallant fellows were alongside the frigate in line, boarding at several points simultaneously. The Spaniards were completely taken by surprise, the whole, with the exception of the sentries, being asleep at their quarters, and great was the havoc made amongst them by the Chilean cutlasses whilst they were recovering themselves. Retreating to the forecastle, they there made a gallant stand, and it was not until the third charge that the position was carried. The fight was for a short time renewed on the quarter-deck, where the Spanish marines fell to a man, the rest of the enemy leaping overboard and into the hold to escape slaughter. On boarding the ship by the main chains, I was knocked back by the sentry's musket, and falling on the thole-pin of the boat, it entered my back near the spine, inflicting a severe injury which caused me many years of subsequent suffering. Immediately regaining my footing, I reascended the side, and, when on deck, was shot through the thigh. But, binding a handkerchief tightly around the wound, I managed, though with great difficulty, to direct the contest to its close. The whole affair, from beginning to end, occupied only a quarter of an hour, our loss being eleven killed and thirty wounded, whilst that of the Spaniards was a hundred and sixty, many of whom fell under the cutlasses of the Chileans before they could stand to their arms. Greater bravery I never saw displayed than by our gallant fellows. Before boarding, the duties of all had been appointed, and a party was told off to take possession of the tops. We had not been on deck a minute when I hailed the foretop, and was instantly answered by our own men, an equally prompt answer being returned from the frigate's main-top. No British man-of-war's crew could have excelled this minute attention to orders. The uproar speedily alarmed the garrison, who, hastening to their guns, opened fire on their own frigate, thus paying us the compliment of having taken it, though, even in this case, their own men must still have been on board, so that firing on them was a wanton proceeding. Several Spaniards were killed or wounded by the shot of the fortress, Amongst the wounded was Captain Coig, the commander of the Esmeralda, who, after he was made prisoner, received a severe contusion by a shot from his own party. The fire from the fortress was, however, neutralised by a successful expedient. 
There were two foreign ships of war present during the contest, the United States frigate Macedonian and the British frigate Hyperion, and these, as had previously been agreed upon with the Spanish authorities in case of a night attack, hoisted peculiar lights as signals to prevent being fired upon. This contingency being provided for by us, as soon as the fortress commenced to fire on the Esmeralda, we also ran up similar lights, so that the garrison did not know which vessel to fire at. The Hyperion and Macedonian were several times struck, while the Esmeralda was comparatively untouched. Upon this, the neutral vessels cut their cables and moved away. Contrary to my orders, Captain Grews then cut the Esmeralda's cables also, so that there was nothing to be done but to lose her topsails and follow. The fortress thereupon ceased its fire. I had distinctly ordered that the cables of the Esmeralda were not to be cut, but that after taking her, the force was to capture the Maypew, a brig of war, previously taken from Chile, and then to attack and cut adrift every ship near, there being plenty of time before us. I had no doubt that, when the Esmeralda was taken, the Spanish would desert the other ships as fast as their boats would permit them, so that the whole might have been either captured or burnt. To this end, all my previous plans had been arranged, but on my being placed hors de combat by my wounds, Captain Grice, on whom the command of the prize devolved, chose to interpose his own judgment and content himself with the Esmeralda alone, the reason assigned being that the English had broken into her spirit room and were getting drunk, whilst the Chileans were disorganised by plundering. It was a great mistake. If we could capture the Esmeralda with her picked and well-appointed crew, there would have been little or no difficulty in cutting the other ships adrift in succession. It would only have been the route of Valdivia, over again, chasing the enemy without loss from ship to ship, instead of from fort to fort. Lord Cochrane's exploit, however, though less complete than he had intended, was as successful in its issue as it was brilliant in its achievement. This loss of the Esmeralda, wrote Captain Basil Hall, then commanding a British warship in South American waters, was a death-blow to the Spanish naval force in that quarter of the world, for, although there were still two Spanish frigates and some smaller vessels in the Pacific, they never afterwards ventured to show themselves, but left Lord Cochrane undisputed master of the coast. End quote. The speedy liberation of Peru was its direct consequence, although that good work was seriously impaired by the continued and increasing misconduct of General San Martin, inducing troubles of which Lord Cochrane received his full share. In the first burst of his enthusiasm at the intelligence of Lord Cochrane's action, San Martin was generous for once. Quote, the importance of the service you have rendered to my country, my lord, he wrote on the 10th of November, by the capture of the frigate Esmeralda and the brilliant manner in which you conducted the gallant officers and seamen under your orders to accomplish that noble enterprise, have augmented the gratitude due to your former services by the government, as well as that of all interested in the public welfare and in your fame. All those who participated in the risks and glory of the deed also deserve well of their countrymen, and I had the satisfaction to be the medium of transmitting the sentiments of admiration which such transcendent success has excited in the chiefs of the army under my command. End quote. New quote begins. It is impossible for me to eulogise in proper language, he also wrote to the Chilean administration, the daring enterprise of the 5th of November by which Lord Cochrane has decided the superiority of our naval forces, augmented the splendour and power of Chile, and secured the success of this campaign. End quote. A few days later, however, San Martin wrote in very different terms. Quote, Before the general-in-chief left the vice-admiral of the squadron, he said in a bulletin to the army, they agreed on the execution of a memorable project sufficient to astonish intrepidity itself and to make the history of the liberating expedition of Peru eternal. This glory, 
he added, was reserved for the liberating army whose efforts have snatched the victims of tyranny from its hands. End quote. Thus impudently did he arrogate to himself a share, at any rate, in the initiation of a project which Lord Cochrane, knowing that he would oppose it, had purposely kept secret from him, and assigned the whole merit of its completion to the army, which his vacillation and incompetence were holding in unwelcome inactivity. Lord Cochrane was too much accustomed to personal injustice, however, to be very greatly troubled by that fresh indignity. It was a far heavier trouble to him that his first triumph was not allowed to be supplemented by prompt completion of the work on which, and not on any personal aggrandizement, his heart was set, the establishment of Peruvian as well as Chilean freedom. San Martin, having done nothing hitherto but allow his army to waste its strength and squander its resources, first at Pisco and afterwards at Ancon, now fixed Huancha as another loitering place. Thither Lord Cochrane had to convey it before he was permitted to resume the blockade of Callo. This blockade lasted, though not all the while under his personal direction, for eight months. Quote, Several attempts were now made, said Lord Cochrane, with reference to the first few weeks of the blockade, to entice the remaining Spanish naval force from their shelter under the batteries by placing the Esmeralda apparently within reach and the flagship herself in situations of some danger. One day I carried her through an intricate strait called the Boquaron, in which nothing beyond a fifty-ton schooner was ever seen. The Spaniards, expecting every moment to see the ship strike, manned their gunboats ready to attack as soon as she was aground, of which there was little danger, for we had found, and buoyed off with small bits of wood invisible to the enemy, a channel through which a vessel could pass without much difficulty. At another time, the Esmeralda being in a more than unusually tempting position, the Spanish gunboats ventured out in the hope of recapturing her, and for an hour maintained a smart fire, but on seeing the O'Higgins manoeuvring to cut them off, they precipitately retreated." In ways like those, the Spaniards were locked in and harassed in Callo Bay. Good results came in the steady weakening of the Spanish cause. On the 3rd of December, 650 soldiers deserted to the Chilean army. On the 8th, they were followed by 40 officers, and after that, hardly a day passed without some important defections to the Patriot force. Unfortunately, however, there was weakness also among the Patriots. San Martin, idle himself, determined to profit by the advantages, direct and indirect, which Lord Cochrane's prowess had secured and was securing. It began to be no secret, as soon as Peru was freed from the Spanish yoke, he proposed to subject it to a military despotism of his own. This being resented by Lord Cochrane, who, on other grounds, could have little sympathy or respect for his associate, coolness arose between the leaders. Lord Cochrane, anxious to do some important work, if only a few troops might be allowed to cooperate with his sailors, was forced to share some of San Martin's inactivity. In March 1821, he offered, if 2,000 soldiers were assigned to him, to capture Lima, and when this offer was rejected, he declared himself willing to undertake the work with half the number of men. With difficulty, he at last obtained a force of 600, and by them and the fleet, nearly all the subsequent fighting in Peru was done. Lord Cochrane did not venture upon a direct assault on the capital with so small an army, but he used it vigorously from point to point on the coast between Calo and Arica, and thus compelled the capitulation of Lima on the 6th of July. Again, as heretofore, he was thanked in the first moment of triumph to be slighted at leisure. Lord Cochrane, on entering the city, was welcomed as the great deliverer of Peru. The medals distributed on the 28th of July, the day on which Peru's independence was proclaimed, testified that honour was due to General San Martin and his liberating army. 
That, however, was only part of a policy long before devised. Quote, it is now became evident to me, said Lord Cochrane, that the army had been kept inert for the purpose of preserving it entire, to further the ambitious views of the general, and that, with the whole force now in Lima, the inhabitants were completely at the mercy of their pretended liberator, but in reality their conqueror. End quote. With that policy, however much he reprobated it, Lord Cochrane wisely judged that it was not for him to quarrel. Quote, As the existence of this self-constituted authority, he said, was no less at variance with the institutions of the Chilean Republic than with its solemn promises to the Peruvians, I hoisted my flag on board the O'Higgins, determined to adhere solely to the interests of Chile, but not interfering in any way with General San Martin's proceedings till they interfered with me, in my capacity as Commander-in-Chief of the Chilean Navy. He was not, therefore, in Lima on the 3rd of August, when San Martin issued a proclamation declaring himself Protector of Peru, and appointing three of his creatures as Ministers of State. Of the way in which he became acquainted of this violent and lawless measure, a precise description has been given by an eyewitness, Mr. W. B. Stevenson. Quote, on the following morning, the 4th of August, he says, Lord Cochrane, uninformed of the change which had taken place in the title of San Martin, visited the palace and began to beg the General-in-Chief to propose some means for the payment of the seamen who had served their time and fulfilled their contract. To this San Martin offered that he would never pay the Chilean squadron unless it was sold to Peru, and then the payment should be considered part of the purchase money. Lord Cochrane replied that, by such a transaction, the squadron of Chile would be transferred to Peru, by merely paying what was due to the officers and crews for services done to that state. San Martin knit his brows, and, turning to his ministers, Garcia and Monteguido, ordered them to retire, to which his lordship objected, stating that, as he was not master of the Spanish language, he wished them to remain as interpreters, being fearful that some expression, not rightly understood, might be considered offensive. San Martin now turned round to the admiral and said, Are you aware, my lord, that I am protector of Peru? No said his lordship. I ordered my secretaries to inform you of it, returned San Martin. That is now unnecessary, for you have personally informed me, said his lordship. I hope that the friendship which has existed between General San Martin and myself will continue to exist between the protector of Peru and myself. San Martin then, rubbing his hands, said, I have only to say that I am protector of Peru. The manner in which this last sentence was expressed roused the admiral, who advancing said, then it becomes me, as senior officer of Chile, and consequently representative of the nation, to request the fulfilment of all promises made to Chile and the squadron, but first and principally the squadron. San Martin returned, Chile, Chile, I will never pay a single real to Chile. As to the squadron, you may take it where you please, and go where you choose. A couple of schooners are quite enough for me. On hearing this, Garcia left the room, and Monteguido walked to the balcony. San Martin paced the room for a short time, and turning to his lordship said, Forget, my lord, what is past. The admiral replied, I will when I can, and immediately left the palace. End quote. Reader's note, new quote begins. One thing has been omitted in the preceding narrative, says Lord Cochrane. General San Martin, following me to the staircase, had the temerity to propose to me to follow his example, namely to break faith with the Chilean government, to which we had both sworn to abandon the squadron to his interests and to accept the higher grade of first admiral of peru i need scarcely say that a proposition so dishonourable was declined when in a tone of irritation 
he declared that he would neither give the seamen their arrears of pay, nor the gratuity he had promised. End quote. Lord Cochrane lost no time in returning to his flagship in Callow Roads. Thence, however, on the 7th of August, he wrote a letter to San Martin, couched in terms as temperate and persuasive as he could bring himself to use. Quote, My dear General, he there said, I address you for the last time under your late designation, being aware that the liberty I may take as a friend might not be deemed to chorus to you under the title of protector. For I shall not, with a gentleman of your understanding, take into account, as a motive for abstaining to speak the truth, any chance of your resentment. Nay, were I certain that such would be the effect of this letter, I would nevertheless perform such an act of friendship in repayment of the support you gave me at the time when the basest plots were laid for my dismissal from the Chilean service. Permit me to give you the experience of eleven years, during which I sat in the first senate in the world, and to say what I anticipate on the one hand, and what I fear on the other, nay, what I foresee. You have it in your power to be the Napoleon of South America, but you have also the power to choose your course, and if the first steps are false, the eminence on which you stand will, as though from the brink of a precipice, make your fall the more heavy and the more certain. The real strength of government is public opinion. What would the world say were the protector of Peru, as his first act, to cancel the bonds of St. Martin, even though gratitude may be a private and not a public virtue? What would they say were the protector to refuse to pay the expense of that expedition which placed him in his present elevated situation? What would they say were it promulgated to the world that he intended not even to remunerate those employed in the navy which had contributed to his success? End quote. Much more to the same effect, Lord Cochrane wrote, urging honesty upon San Martin as the only path by which he could win for himself a permanent success and making a special claim upon his honesty in the interests of the seamen and naval officers to whom neither pay nor prize money had been given since their departure from Chile nearly a year before. It was all in vain. San Martin wrote on the 9th of August a letter making professions of virtue and acknowledging much personal indebtedness to Lord Cochrane and the fleet, but evading the whole question at issue. Quote, I am disposed, he said, to recompense valour displayed in the cause of the country, but you know, my lord, that the wages of the crews do not come under these circumstances, and that I, never having engaged to pay the amount, am not obliged to do so. That debt is due from Chile, whose government engaged the seamen. End quote. Lord Cochrane knew that Chile would decline to pay for work that, if intended to be done in its interests, had been perverted from that intention, and his crews also knowing it became reasonably mutinous. After much further correspondence, in which San Martin suggested as his only remedy that Lord Cochrane should accept the dishonourable proposal made to him, and, becoming himself First Admiral of Peru, should induce the fleet to join in the same rebellion against Chile to which the army had been brought by its general, and in which Captains Guise and Spry, always evil-minded, had already joined, Lord Cochrane adopted a bold but altogether justifiable manoeuvre, a large quantity of treasure seized from the Spaniards, having been deposited by San Martin at Ancon, he sailed thither in the middle of September and quietly took possession of it. So much as lawful owners could be found for was given up. With the residue amounting to $285,000, Lord Cochrane paid off the year's arrears to every officer and man in his employ, taking nothing for himself but reserving the small surplus for the pressing exigencies and re-equipment of the squadron. It is unnecessary to detail the angry correspondence that arose out of that rough act of justice. Before the money was distributed, treacherous offers to restore it and enter into rebellious league with San Martin were made to Lord Cochrane. 
and with these were alternated mock virtuous complaints and bombastic threats both bribes and threats were treated by him with equal contempt Quote, after a lapse of nearly forty years anxious consideration he wrote in eighteen fifty eight i cannot reproach myself with having done anything wrong in the seizure of the money of the protectoral government general san martin and myself had been in our respective departments deputed to liberate peru from spain and to give to the peruvians the same free institutions which chile herself enjoyed the first part of our object had been fully effected by the achievements and vigilance of the squadron the second part was frustrated by general san martin aggregating to himself despotic power which set at naught the wishes and voice of the people as my fortune in common with his own was only to be secured by acquiescing in the wrong he had done to chile by casting off his allegiance to her and by upholding him in the still greater wrong he was inflicting on peru i did not choose to sacrifice my self-esteem and professional character by lending myself as an instrument to purposes so unworthy i did all in my power to warn general san martin of the consequences of ambition so ill-directed but the warning was neglected if not despised chile trusted him to defray the expenses of the squadron when its objects as laid down by the supreme director should be accomplished but in place of fulfilling the obligation he permitted the squadron to starve its crews to go in rags and the ships to be in perpetual danger for want of the proper equipment which chile could not afford to give them when they sailed from valparaiso the pretence for this neglect was want of means though at the same time money to a vast amount was sent away from the capital to ancon seeing that no intention existed on the part of the protector's government to do justice to the chilean squadron whilst every effort was made to excite discontent among the officers and men with the purpose of procuring their transfer to peru i seized the public money satisfied the men and saved the navy to the chilean republic which afterwards warmly thanked me for what i had done despite the obloquy cast upon me by the protector's government there was nothing wrong in the course i pursued if only for the reason that if the chilean squadron was to be preserved it was impossible for me to have done otherwise years of reflection have only produced the conviction that were i again placed in similar circumstances i should adopt precisely the same course in spite of his treachery to the chilean government general san martin professed to retain his functions as commander-in-chief of the chilean liberating expedition to peru and accordingly when he found it useless to make further efforts by bribes or threats to seduce lord cochrane from his allegiance he ordered him to return at once to valparaiso this order lord cochrane refused to obey seeing that the work entrusted to him the entire destruction of the spanish squadron in the pacific had not yet been completed he determined to complete that work first going to guayaquil to repair and refit his ships which san martin would not allow him to do in any peruvian port he was thus employed during six weeks following the eighteenth of october eighteen twenty one on his departure a complimentary address from the townsmen afforded him an opportunity of offering some good advice on a matter in which his long and intelligent political experience showed him that they were especially at fault the inhabitants of guayaquil like many other young communities sought to increase their revenues and strengthen their independence by violent restrictions upon foreign commerce and arbitrary support of native monopolists lord cochrane eloquently propounded to them the doctrine of free trade Quote, let your public press he said declare the consequences of monopoly and affix your names to the defence of your enlightened system let it show if your province contains eighty thousand inhabitants and if eighty of those are privileged merchants according to the old system that nine hundred and ninety-nine persons out of a thousand must suffer because their cotton coffee tobacco timber and other products 
must come into the hands of the monopolist as the only purchaser of what they have to sell and as the only seller of what they must necessarily buy the effect being that he will buy at the lowest possible rate and sell at the dearest so that not only are the nine hundred and ninety nine injured but the lands will remain waste the manufactories without workmen and the people will be lazy and poor for want of a stimulus it being a law of nature that no man will labour solely for the gain of another tell the monopolist that the true method of acquiring general riches political power and even his own private advantage is to sell his country's produce as high and foreign goods as low as possible and that public competition alone can accomplish this let foreign merchants who bring capital and those who practise any art or handicraft be permitted to settle freely thus competition will be formed from which all must reap advantage then will land and fixed property increase in value the magazines instead of being receptacles of filth and crime will be full of the richest foreign and domestic productions and all will be energy and activity because the reward will be in proportion to the labour your river will be filled with ships and the monopolists degraded and shamed you will bless the day in which omnipotence permitted to be rent asunder the veil of obscurity under which the despotism of spain the abominable tyranny of the inquisition and the want of liberty of the press so long hid the truth from your sight let your customs duties be moderate in order to promote the greatest possible consumption of foreign and domestic goods then smuggling will cease and the returns to the treasury increase let every man do as he pleases as regards his own property views and interests because each individual will watch over his own with more zeal than senates ministers or kings by your enlarged views set an example to the new world and thus as guayaquil is from its situation the central republic it will become the centre of the agriculture commerce and riches of the pacific lord cochrane left guayaquil on the third of december and cruised northwards in search of the prueba and venganza the only two remaining spanish frigates which had made their escape from callo and gone in the direction of mexico he sailed along the colombian and mexican coasts as far as acapulco where he called on the twenty ninth of january eighteen twenty two without finding the objects of his search he then learned on the second of february from an incoming merchantman that the frigates had eluded him and were now somewhere to the southwards upon that he at once retraced his course and in spite of a storm which nearly wrecked his two best ships one of them the captured esmeralda now rechristened the valdivia was at guayaquil again on the thirteenth of march there as he expected from information received on the passage he found the venganza both the frigates had been compelled by want of provisions to run the risk of halting at guayaquil whether also an envoy from san martin had arrived instructed to tempt the guayaquilians into friendship with peru and jealousy of chile on the appearance of the spanish frigates he had persuaded their captains as the only means of averting the certain ruin that lord cochrane was planning for them quietly to surrender to the peruvian government in this way chile was cheated of its prizes although lord cochrane's main object the entire overthrow of the spanish warshipping in the pacific was accomplished without further use of powder and shot the prueba had been sent to callo and the vengenza was now being refitted in guayaquil lord cochrane had now done all that it was possible for him to do in fulfilment of the naval mission on which he had quitted chile a year and a half before proceeding southward he anchored in callo roads from the twenty fifth of april till the tenth of may san martin's government fearing punishment for their misdeeds prepared to defend callo lord cochrane however wrote to say that he had no intention of making war upon the peruvians that all he asked was adequate payment for the services rendered to them by his officers and seamen in the same letter he denounced the new treachery that had been shown with reference to the venganza and pruba 
The answer to that letter was a visit from San Martin's chief minister, who begged Lord Cochrane to recall it, and impudently repeated the old office of service under the Peruvian government, adding that San Martin had written a private letter to the same effect. Quote, "'Tell the protector from me,' said Lord Cochrane, "'that if, after the conduct he has pursued, he sent me a private letter, it would most certainly have been returned unanswered.' You may also tell him that it is not my wish to injure him, that I neither fear him nor hate him, but that I disapprove of his conduct. End quote. Lord Cochrane's brief stay off Callo sufficed to convince him that, though the people of Peru were being, for the time, subjected to a tyranny almost equal to that practised by Spain, no one was likely to be long in fear of San Martin, as his treacheries and his vices were already bringing upon him well-deserved disgrace and punishment. To that purport, Lord Cochrane wrote to O'Higgins on the 2nd of May, quote, As the attached and sincere friend of your Excellency, he said, I hope you will take into your serious consideration the propriety of at once fixing the Chilean government upon a base not to be shaken by the fall of the present tyranny in Peru, of which there are not only indications, but the result is inevitable, unless, indeed, the mischievous counsels of vain and mercenary men can suffice to prop up a fabric of the most barbarous political architecture serving as a screen from whence to dart their weapons against the heart of liberty. Thank God my hands are free from the stain of labouring in any such work, and having finished all you gave me to do, I may now rest till you shall command my further endeavours for the honour and security of my adopted land. End, End of chapter 8